2: Everyone has a story
1: in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
2: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Starship Sova's show 362. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, uh, we have the main fiction, I Love You Like Water by Angela Slatter. Then we have a little bit of fiction by, or short fiction by, Matthew Sanborn-Smith, About Face. About Face is from Matthew Sanborn-Smith's The Dritty Dozen, which has just come out on Amazon. Matthew, as you know, is fiction crawler extraordinaire. Then we have an interview with a young gentleman... The young gentleman, a gentleman not too far from me in Darlington called Jonathan Taylor, who's got a, a cracking story out called The Forgotten Mission. I have a little interview with Jonathan. He is a local lad born and bred there. That is all coming on today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, as I record this, yes, the Kickstarter is in its final waning hours. Yes, 48 hours to go. It is the 12th of November. And there's 48 hours to go. How very exciting. (laughs) So I do hope if you're you're interested in SofaCon, you've got 48 hours from the 12th of November. Do pop over and have a look there, please. So the main fiction, or one of the main fictions is Angela Slatter with her story, I Love You Like Water. I'll give you a little bio on Angela Specialising in dark fantasy and horror, Angela Slatter is the author of the Auralist Award winning The Girl With No Hands and Other Tales, the World Fantasy Awards finalist Sourdough and Other Stories, Auralist Finalist Midnight and Moonshine with Lisa L. Hannett, as well as the 2014 release Black Winged Angels, The Bitterwood Bible and Other Recountings and The Female Factory again with Lisa L. Hannett. Her short stories have appeared in Fantasy, Nightmare and Lightspeed, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, Fairy Tales, A Book of Horrors and Australian, UK and USA Best of Anthologies. She is the first Australian to win the British Fantasy Award for The Coffin Maker's Daughter, who holds an MA and a PhD in Creative Writing, is a graduate from Clarion South and the Tin House Summer Writers' Workshops and was an inaugural Queensland Writers Fellow. She blogs at com about shiny things that catch her eye. Now this story is narrated by Iba Amicus. Iba is a nomadic screenwriter director based in Los Angeles and Seattle. Her first feature film is due for release in 2015. How very exciting. And she is currently writing the pilot for a new show by Zombie Ophius Entertainment. She regularly makes terrible life choices in the pursuit of stories and is very bad at finding time to work on a website. I'll put a link on to Iba's Twitter account as well, so you can go and have a little talk with Iba. Iba, fantastic. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present I Love You Like Water by Angela Slatter.
0: The desert laps at the edge of the city. What used to be conurbation is now one city short. The place where two cities meet is a sand trap. The inhabitants of the place that got swallowed the hardy few who stayed, are referred to as sand crabs. Doctors say the mutations have begun, slight but definite, and within a few generations perhaps, there will be something on two legs that can live, unaided, in the uber desert we've carelessly created. For now, they are just strange, shambling things, living on the edges, only coming out at night, and not quite dangerous. Sometimes I watch from the hermetically sealed balcony until it seems I have a wallpaper of sandy beige on my eyes. I almost forgot there's an apartment behind me. Furniture, big screen plasma TV, all the mod cons. Sometimes I think if I turn around it will all be gone, swept away by the sand. Sometimes I think I can feel the grains against the wet membranes of my eyes, gritty, scratching, Embedding themselves into my soft tissues. When I get to that point, I know it's time to turn away, to get the eye drops chilling in the fridge and enjoy their cold, slightly oily touch. Then I watch a disc, something with a lot of water in it. Jaws, the Poseidon adventure, deep blue sea. Not water world, though. You have to have some standards. It's been harder to look away since Sophie left. Nothing I want to look at in the apartment anymore. But today it's easier. The empty space behind me. Because today I have somewhere to be. My security clearance has come through and finally my degree will be put to good use. It's taken almost a year and that's been a rush job. I'm a special case. Dead parents, especially high-profile dead parents who made the party their life and who died in the purges of 2010, can come in handy just when you thought the only things you were likely to get out of them were five years of brutal boarding school, a lot of money, and a glass pyramid of an apartment. Everyone's grateful, Cato, for their sacrifice. The party will look after you. And it did. It took its time, but it did. I could have had a party job, but I wanted a position at Aqua Humana, and I got it. And that's when Sophie left me. Sophie, where there used to be a river and a lake, now there is a wide bed of dried sand and an empty crater, with the bottom flaked and oily as old skin. When we first moved here, there was still a thin trickle of dirty, determined water creeping down the riverbed. Kada would have hated this tiny apartment. He might like the view, though. All the sand and rock. The aridity of it. Strange boy. I miss him sometimes but less and less when I think about his new job. I look out at the changed environment, fingering the amulet at my throat, and hum a dirge. We used to visit here on holidays, my family, and there was water then. I remember the river and lake brimming. I prefer to imagine the green-brown of my memory superimposed over the yellow and brown of the sand and mud. Some days it's harder to make my memory obey me. Who'd have thought so much water would be so quick to leave, both land and memory? What are you doing, Binet, my cousin? asks from the kitchen. She knows what I'm doing, but she asks anyway. Praying, you know I'm praying. A lot of good that'll do you. Some activist you are. She snickers, treading over old ground. The praying activist didn't help much when the drought came. Didn't help at all when the earth dried up overnight. Didn't happen overnight, Bene. I kiss the amulet and turn around. She smiles at me. She knows I do more than pray. And maybe we weren't saying the right prayers. Maybe. She throws me an apple, cold from the fridge. Its skin is a bright, sharp green. All the fruits and veggies look like that now. Something is added in the hydroponics to intensify the color, make it brighter, harder not quite right. My appetite doesn't respond, and she continues. When will we hear? They're discussing it this week, in Parliament. Not sure there'll be much debate. Things are desperate, and I think they're willing to try anything at this point. You're taking a chance. I can't believe they believe you. I don't believe you most of the time, she says pointedly, then shakes her head, trying to bring an old religion back to break a drought. All through human history, Bene, human sacrifice has worked. Brought back crops, brought rain, saved cities. Best if it's a leader. If we live on this planet, we have to be willing to put something back into it. Something that needs to be blood. I'm not as certain as I sound. I'm terrified, nauseous, lost. Very scientific, you bloodthirsty tart. She gestures at me with a knife. Why do you stay if you think I'm a nut? Because, because 0.5% of the time, I think you might be right. I must get sand-mad. Very likely. We share grins that fade too quickly. They'll turn on you, you know, if it doesn't work. Even if it does work. She takes a sad-looking lettuce from the fridge. This one hasn't been artificially enhanced, and it's small and shrunken, and for some awful reason, reminds me of an overly large testicle. They won't care you're a religious... It won't matter that they've listened to you in the past, followed you. It's a short step to martyrdom, cousin. Everything's a risk, Bene. Doesn't matter. If we don't try something, we're gone anyway. What about the Aquahumana plant? It seems to be producing enough water. Enough for those that can afford it. There's no common good in what they do. Like anything, we only worry when it starts to affect us. And it's creeping upwards, Bene. Remember when we were comfortably middle class? Remember when there were lower orders? We are the lower orders now. The ones below us all disappeared. The tomato in her hand throbs red. a thought jars. You didn't buy any, did you? Aqua No, she pouts, but I wanted to. I filled the buckets from the recycling fountain in the foyer, just like everyone else. Just like the plebs. She shaves slivers of carrots into a bowl on the counter. Salad? No, thanks. I'm not hungry. You're too thin, Sophie. There's such a thing as taking this aestheticism too far, you know. It's not religious. I just can't stomach most of the food nowadays. When the water went, everything else turned bad. I looked back at the window, watching the wind pick up grains of sand and hurl them against the glass. I can hear the sound like a miniature machine gun, a hard rain falling upon us. Cato. It's a beautiful plant. The engineering nerd in me wants to caress the machinery, the pipes, the smooth lines, press my ear against the great turbines and tanks and listen, just like I used to with Sophie's belly, listening for signs of life. But I restrain myself and follow along in the wake of the other newbies at Aquahumana. We're distinguished only by differing heights and bad ties. The white coats they gave us are ill-fitting. Mine pulls across my shoulders whenever I shrug, or reach, or stretch, or breathe deeply. I'd like to ditch it, wander around in my shirt sleeves, but that would make me stand out, and those who stand out in the wrong way don't make it through. We walk past a row of tremendous pipes, each one six feet wide, lined up like the ribs of God. They carry a low ocular weight, CFC, refrigerant for the plant. I can only imagine how big the storage tanks are. This is our second week, the final leg of the orientation program. There were 30 of us to start, but our numbers have been whittled down to 12. Not sure where the others went. One of the supervisors blithely mentioned something about incompatibility. The man we're following, like imprinted ducklings, is the chief engineer. Bald, broad, tall, hard. Looks more like a rugby player or a bouncer. But Torstein's a legend in certain circles, for his advances in water extraction techniques. You know the saying, blood from a stone? Well, he's the man who pulls water from a stone. I used to have a picture of him on my wall. I read everything by him and about him. He occupied the space of God in my life. Working with him has always been my dream. We stop in front of a secure room. Torstein steps into a Perspex box, something like a shower stall. A bioscan makes sure he is who he's supposed to be. It's easy enough to fix scans of retinas, fingerprints, even breath. Not so much with a full body. A map of organs, broken bones, teeth fillings. Your physical trace doesn't lie the door slides open. Before we go inside, make sure you've got your badges properly embedded. The scanners in this room will read you at random intervals. If they don't pick up your badges, alarms will go off and security teams will descend. This won't bother you, though, because the defense systems in the room will vaporize you well before anyone else arrives. He turns away, doesn't bother to watch us all nervously check our badges, checks that the pins are embedded into our flesh to track the flow of our blood and the movement of our breath. He disappears through the doorway, and we follow. Sophie. Sonic showers. You never feel quite clean after them. It's like being dry-cleaned. I miss water. I miss splashing around under a bath full of it. I miss standing under a shower as pin-sharp droplets massage my skin until I'm bright, pinky-red. I miss walking around with wet hair, Miss my mother's voice telling me, you'll catch a chill if you don't dry that off. I shrug into stiff jeans and a dark tee. I miss clothes that feel soft after washing, that smell like fresh apples or vanilla, or whatever fabric softener you used that week. Everything is dry clean now. Everything is stiff and scratchy, even the tees. How do you make a fucking t shirt scratchy? I sit at the window. If I stare for long enough, I can see, or think I can see, water in the lake again. Too imaginary to be of use. Cato's letter on the side table brushes my hand, the air-con breeze making it move to get my attention. His spider scrawl is strangely loose, as if an arachnid got stoned and decided to write a note to an old girlfriend. But his words are lucid. I read the last paragraph once more. I know you think I don't care, that I'm happy to live as long as I'm in a privileged class. It was true for a long time, Sophie, but I've changed. I think a lot about what you said. I think a lot about you and your nosy conscience. I think about what it must be like to have a soul so great that you can carry the world around in it, even though the world doesn't know it. I know you wouldn't admit to it, but you think that every sin is your responsibility, and every one is an incision on your heart. I know you're planning something. I read the papers, all the articles they write about you. I don't want to come to that. I have an idea. Please, don't do anything until you hear from me. If I'm right, you won't need to sacrifice anything. I know it's a little late for me to grow a social conscience, but it's happened whether you believe it or not. I love you. I love you like water. Cato. I love you like water. I love you like something lost. The letter is dated a week ago. I love you like water. I crumple the fool's cap sheet up, hard and throw it against the glass. Parliament met today, made a decision. The Premier has agreed, willingly, he says. It had better be. It must be willingly, freely given, or it's a waste, just a bloody waste. It's set for two days from now. Not that we can really afford to wait. I wonder where Bene is. It's getting late, and I need to get going. The premiere is waiting for instruction. I stand, my jeans slipping down past the sharp greyhound bones of my hips. She's right, I'm too thin. I can feel my ribs under the tee. My eyes and cheeks are getting hollow. I'm tired. Come on, Bene, where are you? Once again, the sound of sand throwing itself at the glass beats a sad tattoo. Cato, Rows and rows and rows of glass boxes, in a space like ten enclosed football fields. Each box is a terrarium, so the life inside has a damp environment. Condensation gathers on the walls of the boxes, dripping into the little runnels at the edges then downwards with the trajectory of the slightly tilted boxes, into tubes, concertined and translucent, that feed into the floor. Inside the boxes are people. The poor, the sick, the homeless, the afflicted. Those the prisons no longer hold. The refugees who escape from detention centers. Those whose boats supposedly never made it to our shores. Their bodies are naked, pathetically emaciated, each in various stages of mummification as the water is extracted from them. Two of my colleagues are being sick into waste bins. Torstein looks mildly annoyed. I swallow hard. No doubt our numbers will dwindle again. No children, I mutter, rapidly surveying as many coffins as I can. Torstein looks at me like I'm a bright student, someone he's been hoping for. He ignores my puking fellows and the other lost ducks and takes me by the arm. I'm almost as tall as him, but not so broad. No, no, children. While the fluid they produce is more pure, there's much less of it, and it's not economically viable to extract it from them, not even in large numbers. He points northward. So we have a nursing facility. My people are mapping the best time to extract for maximum productivity and quality of moisture you wait too long and puberty kicks in, the water is so filled with hormones we can't use it. Can't purify it enough for drinking. We use it for industrial purposes, but that doesn't make us much money. When they get through puberty, then we have a viable source. My parents own shares, I say numbly. What's your name? He pats my back the way my father used to, when not encourage me to do something I didn't want to. Cato, I say, even though it's emblazoned on my badge. Cato Dunn. He smiles, a wide, open, honest smile, the kind you'd like to see from your godfather or favorite uncle. I knew your parents, Seneca and Honoria Dunn, great friends of the party. Servants of the party, I corrected. Great servants of the party and its aims. You ought. Back to the Southwest Labs. Dr. Walker, show them how to monitor the extractors. He steers me further along the row of clear coffins. Let's you and I have a chat, Cato. I've been looking for an assistant. We pass another coffin. Inside is a new inhabitant. I recognize the short dark hair, the razor-sharp cheekbones, and the pouty lips, like a Lulu Brooks doll. Benet lies naked and fragile beneath the glass. Oh. Oh, Sophie. Sophie. The loss of Binet sits in my throat, like something caught. I don't know if she was taken because of me, or simply because she was unlucky in the choice of street, shop, parking space. Maybe she's lying somewhere, dead or dying, desiccating in the heat because someone mugged her for the bright vegetables she was carrying, for the things she set out to get to tempt my winning appetite. Perhaps they took her car, her purse... I called the police, but they couldn't or won't help. I zip up my jacket. I don't know why I'm surprised at the cold. I've always known the deserts are freezing at night. Perhaps it's still hard to remember that this city is now part of a desert, that sand gathers in our streets, piles against doorways and windowsills, that we have to seal our living spaces to keep from being buried while we sleep. Willa and Gianni have let themselves in and wait in the lounge room. Willa's features are soft, gentle, caramel-colored, her hair is a frizz of mahogany. Gianni, a former Jesuit, looks like a recruitment poster for the Inquisition. No sign? asks Willa. I shake my head. It's time to go. Don't want to be late. Gianni wraps his long arms around me, pushes his face into my hair like he's trying to imprint me into his memory. Willa starts to cry. I reach a hand out and draw her to us. We stand like that for a while, as they cry for me. I have no tears left. Finally, I draw away. I wipe their faces, feeling the salty liquid against my fingertips. I lick the moisture and smile. Can't wait any longer. Do you really think it'll happen? Do you really think he'll do it? Willa's voice is breathy, hopeful. I have to believe it for as long as I can, Willa. And if he doesn't, at the last minute, if the premier refuses, what then? Asked Gianni, a man who lost his faith long ago. Then, Plan B. Cato. Torstein didn't take long to trust me. Stupid of him, really all his security measures and threats of vaporizing laser beams, and he basically adopts me. Because he met my parents once, and I asked the right questions. Maybe he wants a son. Maybe something more intimate. Doesn't matter. He's lying under a bench in his personal lab, bleeding away quietly, hands and feet tied up with electrical tape. I wrap my lab coat around his head so the blood doesn't flow across the floor for me to slip on. That would be all I need at this stage a broken arm or a broken hip. All the things I thought I could do, all the good, evaporated when I saw Bene lying there. I wonder what Torstein's conscience is like. I wonder how you learn to ignore the little voice inside. I can, sometimes, but Sophie never could. She said it was always louder than the voices outside her head. Doesn't matter now. The refrigerant tanks are in the furthest building, Time to put my theory in action. Sophie. I've never seen so many people packed into the square outside Parliament. They're wrapped up against the cold, with balaclavas and goggles to keep the sand out, some with stylish new face shields that combine both elements. Stormtroopers line the edge of the crowd, riot shields and black helmets suck away any ambient light from the street lamps. Willa and Gianni escort me to the edge of the crowd. One of the troopers recognizes me as I pull off my hood, feel the sand sting against my flesh. I felt numb since Gianni told me about Aquahumana, on the way here, about the plant, about Cato. I relish the bite of the particles, glad to feel anything. He clears a path and others see me. They move aside like water cut by the prow of a ship. Whispers carry along ahead of me. It's her, the religious. Look, she's so small. They built a raised platform. I frown. That won't work. There needs to be a connection to the ground. The premier's aide appears at the top of the steps, begins his descent. This won't work. I told you not to raise it off the ground. I told you to dig down into the earth. His smile falters. His marketer's mind struggling with the idea of the private, the hidden, the secret. But then people won't be able to see. This isn't meant to be a sideshow, you idiot. I shake my head, then shout to those around me, "Make a space. Move back as far as you can. We need We need a space." And because it's me, and people are desperate to believe, they do it. A small space is made, roughly three meters square with stormtroopers posted along three sides to keep it intact. The fourth side is open to the stairs and the platform. "'Where's the premier?' I ask the aide. He gives me a sick smile. "'He's coming along, a little hiccup or two, a slight change of plan, but he's coming. Look, there he is now.' He points to a man swaying at the top of the stairs. "'Even from here I can see he's the worse for drink.' He has a small boy clutched in front of him, hands digging into the child's shoulders. A woman screams and his wife appears, scratching at him, trying to tear the child away. He backhands her and she falls from sight. "'My son,' he says. "'I'll give you my only son.' I shake my head. Even now, no one can follow the instructions. I turn to the aid. I told you it had to be an adult.' It had to be voluntary. It had to be a leader. I told you it wouldn't work otherwise. A hiss between my teeth. Heated breath and spittle hit his face. His voice pitches high. I'm smaller than he is, but he's scared. He won't go himself. Take the kid! Willa Gianni and I stand, staring up at the drunk man teetering on the edge of the platform. His eyes roll around, unanchored. A little foam gathers at the corner of his mouth. Take my son here, Pete. Won't you take my son? This isn't going to work, I sigh. Plan B, asks Willa. I nod. Plan B. See if a couple of those troopers can lift up some of the pavers so the earth shows. I glance at the man swaying, his sacrifice in his arms. And take care of him, Gianni. Cato. I've been watching the clouds for some time now. intently i don't think anyone else has they stopped bothering a couple years ago see here's the thing we pumped cloud seeding chemicals into the sky for a hell of a long time but no one was able to get them to spill wrong kind of clouds not enough ice crystals not in the right place not cold enough it didn't work the first few times they tried so they gave up Poured the money into pipelines and desalination plants that just made things worse. Took more from the earth and sucked her dry. But with the cold desert air, all the refrigeration in the tanks of Aquahumana, a big enough explosion, a Big Bang kind of thing, should do the trick. Cloud busting, if you will. I've been calculating. If Aquahumana goes up just right, located as it is on the highest point for miles around, it should reach the right clouds. Start the reaction we need. Bring rain again, although it could take a few days. A high tech rain dance. Rain from the refrigerant, chlorotrifluoroethylene, could get nasty. Probably will. Something carcinogenic. But hey, we're already fucked. I can't get much more desperate than this. It strikes me that maybe I'm as much of a fanatic as Sophie ever was. Is. Determined. Tunnel vision. Sure, that I know what's right. Only problem is, I won't know if it works. Won't be time for me to get out of here, and even if there is, the blast radius is gonna flatten everything for miles and miles. Hopefully, not the city. Shouldn't get that far. If it works, Sophie won't have to go through with her hairbrain scheme. There won't be a need for any sacrifice, for any blood spilled. Only mine. That may just help if there's any kind of higher power looking down. Maybe a bit of blood will help the pot. As long as it's not Sophie's. Sophie. Johnny hands me the knife. It came from a museum in Iraq. It was used by the Sumerians in their sacrificial rituals when crops and rain failed. I stand on the dry earth. Pavers pulled up higgly-piggly so my bare feet have contact with the ground. Willa and Johnny take my smile. Don't give it back, though. Tears on their cheeks catch the light. I look up, taking the stars. the moon. The skin of my throat pulls tight and I draw the blade across it. It stings. I am an adult. I am a leader. I am willing. The stars brighten. I hear thunder, an explosion in the sky to the west turns red. I feel blood spurt, run down, soak into my shirt, jeans, hear it patter onto my boots, then soak into the earth, sucked down as if by a thirst-stricken man. I fold, my knees liquefy. Johnny catches me and lowers me gently, There is hard earth beneath me. It shudders and swells, taking great gulps of my blood. Faces fade. The last thing I feel is the splatter of hesitant rain on my face, a stranger mapping its way like a blind man's fingers. I love you.
2: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Angela Slatter. Angela, thank you so much. Big thank you. And Iba, what can I say? Big hugs. And yes, keep me informed about the screenwriters and everything in the film coming out. That would be fantastic. So, young Mr. Matthew Sanborn-Smith has got his first collection out on Amazon. The Dritty Dozen. doesn't. My <laughs> man. Big hugs. And actually, the cover is just outstanding. I straight away, I got it. And it's a cracking cheap price. I think it's one pound something. UK money. So it's Matt's collection of short stories. And there's a great introduction by Matt as well. And, you know, I, I grabbed it straight away and I started reading the kind of introduction to why Matt writes. You know what I mean? The kind of whole kind of ethos of why, why he writes. And it's actually quite frank and it's quite nice. You know what I mean? And he's, he's, he's lovely about it. He says, you know, writing and science fiction isn't the kind of the pinnacle of like his his endeavors to achieve. You know, he, he loves the idea of just like ideas, you know, getting ideas and mulling them around in his, in his head. And that's, I think as well, that's very much like me. Yeah, not maybe kind of stories, but just like ideas. Do you know what I mean? I do this, I do that, I do this. And I think Matt's kind of on the same kind of we're on the same sort of plane and and just grabbing ideas and just mulling them you know and just and waking up and just kind of twisting an idea and you know playing with it and everything like that and what comes out of these kind of stories in the dritty dozen format which are just you know i mean it's just fantastic so please there's a link on to the kind of usa and the uk amazons and like i say you know i mean cheapest chips He's poured his heart and soul into this, and like you say, it looks and it looks fantastic on me kind of Kindle as well. Do you know what I mean? The cover's just perfect, and we know Matt from, you know, Fiction Crawler. Do you know what I mean? And what was funny is, and actually, it, it's the same. You know, Matt's got a certain style which is unique. You know, to the kind of the hairy mango and the way kind of Fiction Crawler, it's full tilt. Do you know what I mean? It's just like you press record and it just, he goes, do you know what I mean? And you kind of keep up with him. Matt's he said it just, you know, he's, he's narrated this story and it's just kind of, whoa, slow down. And that's a bit of a learning curve on Matt because he didn't realize, you know, how hard, how kind of difficult, you know, just to kind of put the brakes on and do it like a narration. Do you know what I mean? Because especially narrate, you know what I mean? It's one of the things I mentioned to people you've got to kind of even slow it down, you know, totally slow it down from the speed you read a book, you know what I mean, the eyesight read, you know, you kind of gulf it. And that's a lot, you know, you kind of a lot of newbies kind of just start out, kind of, you know, and they send over a little kind of MP3 test. And it and it's a way like a rabbit, you know what I mean? And, and it's even normal reading, it has to be even slowed down even more when it's audio book, you know what I mean? So Matt... What can I say? I'll give you a proper like bio because must send out a proper, a proper, you know, an official bio. Matthew Sanborn Smith is a writer who lives in South Florida. His work has appeared at Tor.com, Nature, Chines, and amongst others. Besides his two infrequent contributions to Starship so far, he's also hardly ever seen at SF Signal and heard even less at, on the SF Signal podcast. But what tops them all is how he is almost never heard on SF Audio podcast. He is, however, the Lord of Be Hair the, the Hairy Mango podcast, which celebrated its fifth anniversary earlier this year. Go on, Matthew, sir. He is one head of the Wrighton Hellhound, known as Sebris. The other heads belonging to Grant Stone and Dan Rabards. He once held a Hugo Ward in his sweaty hands before security asked to give it back to its rightful owner, Matthew Sanborn Smith. Do you know what I mean? There's a few guys out there in the world, a few people, should I say, out there in the world that I just want to kind of hug, hug, hug. Do you know what I mean? Just like hug them until they say it to it's actually uncomfortable. You're actually starting to frighten us. There's a few people out there who I would like to do that to. Matt is one of them. So, with all that build-up,
1: the Starship Store that is very proud to present. About Face, A Tale of the Modular Man by Matthew Sanborn Smith. We raised artificial livestock on the farm where I grew up, selling and bartering mishmash animals as pets or as parts for tourists. Many of our brothers regarded our work as folk art, those cosmopolitan space-time-farers brought mass-produced modules by the millions. But the connoisseur module scavenger knew that the backwater planets such as our own held rough gems well worth the increase over factory price. A sleek and contoured heart designed by an engineer in a sterile lab seemed perfect in theory. A heart extracted from an animal raised from an evolved and proven line of biomax, though it might look shabby and organic, had been tested in an actual being for years before hitting the marketplace. My mother made sure the off-world parts scrounger knew he'd discovered the find of a lifetime, doubtless worth a prince's ransom. But, she would admit, simple people such as ourselves had little need for so much. The buyer always agreed to the deal, perhaps supposing he'd put something over on us. Her full-bodied rural beauty may have helped. In the heat season, when our white sun melted slow-moving men where they lingered, the animals fed in the fields of plastic and carbon fibers, which grew wild since my great-grandfather scattered their seeds across the land as a boy. Among our creatures lived a beaked thing we children dubbed Horus, too underdeveloped to be sold off in the earliest market day I could remember. At four years old, I learned my skills at solar collector repair when Horus began sputtering out in the yard. My older sister, Doro, came to me in tears with his quivering body in her arms. Please help him, Manny, she begged. The little thing did look pathetic, a tattered runt that seemed close to death. Our hand, Roberto, normally fixed such things, but that week he was on Ointon, carrying out his annual citizen service. There he plugged into the mother port, along with 999 others. They held hopes of coming one step closer to the uber-construct who would find true meaning in the universe and purpose for us all. From the shed, I dug up Roberto's thin fingers and long eyes. I'd watched him work his techno-magic a hundred times, whiling away cold season afternoons. I'd never made any repairs myself. Nothing in my experience led me to believe I could help poor Horace. Looking into Doro's wet eyes, however, I had no choice but to try. Something happened to me when I ported into Roberto's modules. Odd feelings of half-formed muscle memory that didn't belong to me guided me through circuits I could never have understood by myself. I sat on Roberto's cot beneath wisps of nylon cobwebs and saw a confusion of highways, mere molecules wide, stretching forever. My eyes took me to what must have been the most likely trouble spots. My new fingers, steady as the western moon with their pico shocks and gyros, traversed the destruction on those tiny fields and worked to repair them almost of their own accord. When I thought too hard, I made a mess of things. When I relaxed and did what felt right, I drew atoms from my own body to rebuild a thousand broken roots with simple elegance. My enhanced mind knew that Horace had fallen from a short height. You can't play with Horace on the stone wall any longer, I told Doro. I couldn't see anything at her scale with my borrowed eyes, but I felt her long silence and her tattered yellow frock brush against my knee. Okay, she said, so quietly an older set of ears might not have heard. My older sister sounded for the first time like a little girl to me. Through a long afternoon of limited trials and few errors, I gave life once more to Horace. My grandfather praised my own genius, so he didn't know. He must not have shared my skills maybe no one did. Other people's modules, used with love and for the divine purpose they were built, held their memories, and these I could feel like no one else could. Horace might have gone on to be slaughtered the following season and splayed into a fine ribcage module, but by the time he matured, Doro and I had become so attached to him that we couldn't let him go. "'It's time to turn over the little thing, baby,' "'mother said to Dora one humid evening on our front porch. "'I'll make you a beautiful dress with the cloth we'll afford.' "'Doro stood as if to gather Horace, but instead broke into hysterics. "'She threw herself to the ground and pleaded for his life as if pleading for her child's. "'Mother remained unmoved. "'She stepped toward Dora with one arm outstretched, but I threw myself between them. "'I pulled Doro's head to my small chest as if to protect her, "'though I imagine it looked as if I sought my own sanctuary in her shadow.' Has my sister asked for a thing in her life? I asked, bent and wide-eyed. Not a dress, not a toy, not a scrap of food more than what she's been given. Can't we let her keep the only bit of joy she has out here away from any friend? I, of course, exaggerated my sister's saintliness, but having observed my mother's sales skills, I understood, though couldn't articulate, that people buy not from logic, but from emotion. I blathered on, unrelenting, not for little Horace, but for Dora, who tore my young heart out with each sob. Mother listened patiently, then stepped back with a stern lecture on the care and feeding of a pet as opposed to a farm animal. I don't think the strength of my argument impressed her so much as my ability to apply what I'd picked up from her. Horace's life had been spared. Over the next few months, I attached a Plastiflex nerve skeleton to its single I.O. port, and we added any scrap module we could get our hands on to the poor thing's body. Our pet became our pet project. As I grew taller, time for my shed experiments shrank as my family needed every strong back to stay solvent. The days promised hours of blistering, module-damaging work. We hauled and ground up hundreds of pounds of feed blocks. We cleared trees whose root wires crept beneath the house and scattered signals, or grew beneath the fields, squelching appetites. I often got stuck with the mind-numbing task of herd sculpting. I spent months stressing the animal's more marketable organs for development. I bound limbs and pruned circuits to atrophy unwanted growths where generations of breeding fell short. But the evenings of my youth brought time for cool relaxation. Mother would make us remove and clean our filth-caked parts in a trough of nano-beads on the back porch before allowing us inside. There, our spring-coil muscles wound down after a farmer's dinner of microbial assemblers and raw materials. Grandfather might tell tales of the within wars while grandmother stitched new tools together for Roberto, string by string. In the harsh, smoky light of the chemical fires, I would switch faces for fun with my little sister Esme, the update in our latest edition of the family. I laughed whenever I put on Esme's face. Every Everything seemed so pinched up, like my whole head had eaten a lemon. My own face drooped from Esme like old howlerbug jowls. The modules of our forefathers hung from the rafters in the common area of our home, and we children would make up exotic stories about their uses and owners. A simple rake hand would become the claws of an ancient modular druid king under my telling. Doro transformed the remains of a long-dead uncle's liver box into the fused hearts of two tragic lovers, and little Esme ate up every bit of it. The stories would go on like this until one of the family-proud adults overheard and forced fact upon us before sending us to bed. I slept hard in those days. Never again after that. Late one morning about that time, I finished turning the old ground on the edge of the farm, wearing the tractor legs and plow bottom of my late father, when grandfather walked out to check on my progress. He usually wouldn't come out this far, but I saw he'd used my own young legs and enjoyed the ride. After some small talk about the land, he said, That's quite a game you play with your little sister there, Manny, trading faces. Gave me an idea, though. I wonder if you wouldn't mind if I would borrow your mug sometime. Um, sure, if you want. It's my eyes, you see. Ain't what they used to be. I can still work okay, but a guy needs to get out and have a beer with his friends, you know what I mean? These eyes aren't so good for driving at night. It's fine, Grandpa, I said. It never occurred to me to ask him why he didn't want just my eyes. The next day I understood that the face as a unit made it easier to meet young women at bars. I should have told my grandmother, but the memories of a hundred kisses painted and perfumed would leave me drunk in the morning and addicted for life. The next few times he asked for my face, I handed it over eagerly. Days after I first loaned out my face, I caught Dora washing her hands in the bathroom. Her hand sifted through the beads, her icy pink nail polish unmistakable, but my grandmother's face looked back at me in surprise from the mirror. "Uh Uh-oh, I said. The good times had come to an end. Graham caught on without my telling. It made me sad to see my sister like that, her youth and beauty gone, with none of the life lived in between the first face and this one. Her expression as she turned made me realize I must have looked much the same to her. Grandmother met her husband at the bar that night wearing Doro's face, it being an image spitter for her own former countenance. After a few minutes of sputtering discomfort, my grandfather found a passion he'd thought long dead, as the cracks and fissures of her features had disappeared, so erased were the decades of love servitude under her ownership. For an evening he felt her a being to be pursued once again, a woman he had to live up to rather than a permanent mortgage on a used-up product. All the years of resentment and dry-rotted love between them vanished. Withered fingertips caressed voluptuous lips. Third-generation teeth tenderly chewed pliable young ears. They did things which two people with borrowed faces should never do. With our original faces back in place, Doro and I could not look at one another the next day. The pain she took to avoid me made me suspect that my talent for module memory was not mine alone, and this made me feel doubly ill, not only knowing what I knew, but knowing anyone else, much less Doro, knew it too. I took my meals in my room, when I caught Grandpa leering at Doro, and when I saw my grandmother eye me in an ungrandmotherly way, those meals came back up. Grandpa came back to me that night after supper, begging again for the loan of my face. I'd been raised not to argue with my elders, so although I never wanted to loan him my face again, I didn't feel like I had a choice. What might come next? My hands? Might my grandmother ask for my sister's breasts? Our grandparents borrowed our faces again that night and every night after. As mortified as Doro and I felt, we couldn't disobey them. Each morning I cleansed my face until it burned raw and red. I went faceless in the privacy of my own room. Esme asked to play our little game every so often. I refused and refused again until I yelled at the poor innocent and she bawled to shake the foundation of our home. Mother would get angry at me, but Graham always intervened on my behalf. By now, Horace's shape had become much more humanoid. His original form pared down and stuffed within the chest of his new body, the very ribcage that Mother had once envisioned. As I grew more isolated from my family, I added a cheap bootleg conversa module from an antique infotainer to Horace's growing brain. I plugged it into a dusty old voice box that I found stored away in the attic. From beyond the great reclamation heaps, my great-great-aunt Consuela's voice spoke to me in my room about the advantages of using Huarte's brand fish soap and hacking a man's motor to true devotion in 17 easy steps. Through my grandfather's ears, I heard my grandparents one night in their room. They no longer bothered to leave the house. Why should they? I started drinking alcohol borrowed from the cabinet in the family room after everyone else retired for the night. I applied it externally in the morning to remove an odd and unpleasant taste from my lips that I wouldn't identify until full adulthood. My grandmother passed away eight months later, taken in her sleep when her smoker's lungs finally stopped producing smoke. My grandfather called me into his bedroom door, his tears streaming down my face. She never asked for new modules, he said. She'd always said that if Fate Assembler had wanted us here longer, she would have supplied our parents with better parts. A foolish woman. A stupid, stupid woman. He handed Dora's face to me and asked me to return with his wife's. The exchange with the old man proved to be the most awkward of my life, but only because I hadn't yet spoken to my sister. Dora looked as shocked to see me with her face in my hands as if I'd held out her menstrual module to her. Grandmother has died, I offered as my explanation. Doro gasped and tore our grandmother's visage from her head, throwing it to the floor. She stepped into her room and slammed the door. I picked up Graham's face and left my sister's in its place. After the funeral, Doro left home in the middle of the night. I don't think she wanted to be in the same house as the old man now that she found herself the sole owner of her beauty once more. I think too sometimes about what her face held for her when she put it back on. Did she feel grandmother's death through it as I felt the remembered kisses that my grandfather received? If so, what must have it been like for a living person to feel death and then move on? A lifetime lay ahead of me to forget everything that happened, and the seasons rolled on regardless. I grew accustomed to Aunt Consuela's voice and let Horace become Hera. She became my life's work over the years, and I took to using only the finest off-world modules within my economic grasp to develop her. I could have altered her forever, but I had to stop. There comes a time in a non-born construct's life, if she's ever to become anything more than a mere bot, her maker must bring his work to a halt and give her a couple of undisturbed years. Time is needed for a consciousness to knit itself into existence from her constituent parts. Doro and I never spoke, but through her needle blurbs to Esme, I learned that my older sister had gone east. She'd taken her knowledge of farm-grown modular systems and parlayed it into a company known for its quality and innovations. Doro helped turn small-time farming into big industry, putting some family farms in her part of the country out of business. Her work affected us as well to a lesser extent, as demand for the old-fashioned went down. We let Roberto go as money got tighter paulo esme's school friend from the neighboring land nudged his way into our lives at about that time he wore his modules to scrap doing his own chores in double time most days before coming to our place to lend his many hands he found payment in suppers sitting next to esme in that strange silence the two of them shared so young and yet so much went unspoken I asked Hera for her hand in marriage. She had been my closest companion since childhood, closer than my own family members as I found deep relationships with them to be unbearable. Hera had her own mind now, as strong as mine, and didn't care for some of the imported modules I'd installed. She didn't closet her blonde hair. She sold it off. I don't like standing out among everyone else, she told me in tears when I nearly overloaded my voice box in anger. And what could I do but tell her I loved her, whatever parts she used? Hera took her parts from local farms and vendors, eschewing peddlers with the latest off-world fashions. She traded her thin, pale lips for a pair more full and dark. Her new cheeks were rounded and soft. Between the time I asked her to marry me and the time she said yes, her resemblance to the women in my family had grown disturbing. I didn't see Doro again until Esme's wedding, some 15 years after she'd run away. Had our grandfather still been alive, I might not have even seen her then, but he'd given up on modular replacements himself after losing my grandmother's love for a second time. Doro had become a woman with a grace both matured and refined, untouched by the stretch and relaxation that deforms those women hyperaged by marriage and childbirth. We didn't embrace at the shuttle pickup. We barely spoke each other's names as I led her porter disc to the bed of my old truck, and we didn't say another word after that. Esme's wedding was enchanting. My mother outdid herself, creating something white, golden, and magical on our meager budget. My daughter sang like a dying night angel for our joined families as Esme rode up the aisle on a snow-white steed formed by the fusing of some of our family's combined livestock. The tables at the outdoor reception glowed by firefly lamps. Candied doves peeled themselves open for us with the help of their robotic exoskeletons. We danced to the music of our own squeezebox lungs and bows drawn across vocal string modules purchased for this day. As the night wore on, I went into the house to replenish the drinks. We'd stocked up on carbonated oils for the occasion, flavored with orange, salmon, and alder. With an armload of bottles, I turned to find Doro in the pantry doorway, our uncle's old liver box hanging in the silhouette behind her. She startled me, and I looked straight into her eyes for the first time since childhood. Her look suggested everything that hadn't been spoken between us for all those silent years. Bottles smashed upon the dark wood floor. I walked through shards of dripping glass and I took her head in my hands, letting our facial memories take over. We kissed like we had always kissed before. We kissed like we had never kissed before in shame i had long ago put the thoughts of those thick firm lips from my mind and too the warm softness of her cheek fine hairs invisible to a brother taken for granted by a lover she was mine for just this one heartbeat and eternity the single moment declaring the end of the chase doro left in the night like she had so many years ago I slipped into Hera's fresh bed, she sleeping off an early evening drunk. Her gentle snore warmed the room. I removed my face and placed it in the sock drawer of my bedside table, where, my friends tell me, it is the appropriate place for a married man's pornography.
2: There you go. What can I say? Did you hear my hand there? Get the Dritty Dozen. There's links on USA, UK. Get the Dritty Dozen. Cheapest chips there. It'd be fantastic. So. Going from one book, I'm glad, that in a way, I'm quite chuffed a bits. You know what I mean? Like in the Starship over. So it's not just kind of stories we kind of we recommend. You know what I mean? I'm recommending Matthew Sanborn-Smith. And the next gentleman that's coming up there, Jonathan, Jonathan Taylor, lives in Darlington, which is probably 20 miles away. I could throw a stone in a good wind, headwind. Do you know what I mean? He's wrote The, the, the Forgotten Mission. And I had a little interview with Jonathan because Jonathan's just been hit by, you know, like a, a, one hell of a, a major crisis. Well, I'm I'm very pleased, and actually, I could have just drove down a couple of couple of <laughs> minutes and and seen Jonathan, but I've got Jonathan Taylor on the line who has wrote this this book, The Forgotten Mission, and it's getting loads of cracking reviews there. And like I say, Jonathan's just down the road. Jonathan, whereabouts do you live?
3: I live in Darlington, so just down the road from you.
2: Hey, honestly, I could throw throw a stone. That's how close it is in this kind of you know this shrunken world that we live in now, where we can kind of talk online all over the place. Just, yeah. Like I say, it's just down the road. Jonathan, tell us because, like I say, I've been on Facebook and, you know, all around the kind of web, this, and actually on local news as well. This, The Forgotten Mission is getting some load of like, nice praise there. Is this your first novel?
3: It is, yeah. That's my, my, my first attempt at writing a, a good sci fi novel.
2: Would, was it always going to be, a, you know, a sci fi? If you were ever going to pick up a, a pen or a keyboard, was it always going to be, you write a sci fi novel?
3: Uh yeah, I think it would have been. Uh, my life's a bit sci fi anyway. <laughs> well
2: I was gonna say that, I was gonna come on to that as well, but this is the kind of I'm not saying a kind of sting in the tail, but it's you know, you've you've wrote this book because of certain circumstances as well in yeah. your kind of personal life. I don't know if you want to share that or not or
3: Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm happy to talk about anything, absolutely anything.
2: Well yeah, well tell us then what's what is your personal life? Why what how has this book come about? Well the book started Well
3: before, I I was diagnosed with cancer in 2012, Uh, but I started the book in 2010 after a family holiday to NASA. Well, we didn't go to NASA, but we went to Florida, you know, so the the idea just cropped up up into my head while we were having a wander around the Kennedy Space Center, and uh, I've always been a one for telling stories to the kids while they were growing up. My wife's always pestered me to write them down, and I was a builder previous to this, but... uh, When I was diagnosed with cancer, I'd literally got a 1,000 words written down from the idea that I had, and that was was about it. Sat there for a couple of years, and then once I was diagnosed with cancer, and I've had a, a severe reaction to the chemotherapy, which has left me with nerve damage all over, it's, what do I do now? I can't pick the tools up. I can't do the building work anymore. So it was, what do I do? I'll start that book again. So I made headway on it, so the beginning of the book was actually seeded sort of four years ago really um, and then it, it it came to light after that so I've been through sort of six months of chemotherapy in 2012 uh, and I've been on what's called a maintenance plan so I'm a bit like a car I go in for a service every eight weeks and they top me up with drugs I was just there a few weeks ago um, but touch wood they've told me that that was my last session so I don't need any more drugs for the foreseeable future but the cancer that I've got is uh unfortunately it's the one that won't be cured, so it'll just be sort of maintained whenever it crops up again. So that's how the book came to be. And I've spent the last sort of two years whilst going through treatment and you know, having all the side effects and this, that and the other, writing the book and, and literally formatting it, done everything myself, the website myself, the designs myself, the whole lot. So yeah, it's been it's been a, a good adventure for the last two years.
2: Has it as well? Is it some sort of like because honestly, you're getting told that you've got cancer, it must just be the kind of the world dropping away that, but you've got this book to kind of fall into and just submerge yourself into? Is that kind of a, a bit of a crux where you can just forget about real life and just kind of focus on just imagination and just lose yourself for a, a day or two?
3: Yeah, you can. You can completely, you know, separate yourself from reality. You know, when you're writing a book, you're, you're immersed in in different characters. I mean, when I'd started the book I didn't really have all the characters lined up. I had I had the main character's name and that was about it. And then the others started to develop their own personality within the story and it was it was starting to take a life of its own. And then when I got into the swing of it, you can't switch off. I was there at all three or four o'clock on the morning, you know, piping <laughs> right away. My wife wife well, thought I was absolutely mad, but I was half the time I was I was up buzzing on steroids. <laughs> so I was I had nothing else to do, you know, so it was, I was on a massive high dose of steroids so I couldn't sleep, so it was a, it's a great therapy. Absolutely. I'd recommend it for anybody not not recommend cancer, but you know, I'd recommend anything.
2: On on the on the flip side then, what was it like, you know, was sometimes it was just too too bad to even kind of think about it, you know, because I honestly don't know, you know, your kind of circumstances or anything like that. I just know, you know, I've had a few friends that have kind of passed away with that Kind of, well, some sorts of cancer, and it's just like you say, it's one of the most hideous things going on. And what was it like? You know, are, are some days just hideous for you, or you know, is it things okay now? Or,
3: um, some days were to begin with. The, uh, the chemo really does take its toll on you, but I've got two young kids, I mean, my, my little boy's 12, just turned 12, my little girl's uh, nine year old, so I had to stay strong for them and for my family. I'm not a kind of person who kind of curl up in the corner I've, I've fought it all the way i wanted to make sure that i could show my children show my family that you know whatever happens in life you can battle your way through it you've got to be able to you've got to get your mind in that right place focus yourself on what you want to do and and battle you've, you've got the human beings an absolutely fantastic machine you know so you, you can do anything when you put your mind to it and it's half the battle won once you get your mind in the right place
2: what was it like then, you know, like you say, your trade was a builder. What was it like just kind of stepping away from that for good?
3: Quite hard, yeah. I mean, I'd done it for a number of years. It was my own company. So I had to just sort of, I had probably a year and a half of work booked up when I was diagnosed and they told me straight away down tools because I had I enlarged lymph nodes. They were all over my abdomen, size of tennis balls in my abdomen. And then I had them, they were around my heart, around my esophagus, right around my lungs, size of table tennis balls, all around my chest. So they just said, look, if you pick anything up in your building work, you can squash an artery, you'll have a heart attack, that'll be it. So I was like, oh, right, okay. And I did, I stepped away and I was thinking, blimey, what am I going to do now? You know. <laughs> and you do miss it. I miss the design side of things. I used to do a lot of design work, kitchens and uh, whole renovations. I used to have a property developing company. So it was... It was all hands-on, you know, and I used to subcontract in and we used to have a good laugh on site as well. So I miss all the banter with the boys, but they still pop around for a coffee and, and I still meet up for a odd curry and stuff like that. So it's good. It's good. It's all good at the end of the day.
2: Now, what, let's delve into the forgotten mission then because what just out of curiosity, this is what I'd love to know as well. You know, like you say, you've been a builder, a designer and everything like that, but writing must have been a total different skill to kind of pick up and learn
3: yeah it is I mean I was never the best uh sort of grammatically correct English literature person at school so it has been you know the the advancing technology has been the uh, the key for being able to do it you know iPads and predictive text and things like that but you need a a good proofreader I mean my wife's a uh, teacher in, in Darlington and she's done all the proofreading for me so she's gone through it with a fine tooth comb and I've still been getting people saying, "Oh, there's a little typo there," you know. So I've, I've had her in the office, and I've, I've told her what, told her what needs to be done next time. But you get into the flow of things, and you probably know yourself when you're writing away. You're not too bothered about what's grammatically correct, but you edit it all at the end, and it's been like jumping into the deep end of a swimming pool. You know, it's, it's a whole new field for me, completely, completely.
2: So, give it, without telling much, then Jonathan, or telling the kind of the ending or whatever. But give a little kind of insight: what is the forgotten mission? And because I noticed this is the return number one, so it must be—is it a trilogy or something? Or,
3: yeah, I, well, I've got in the pipeline three books to begin with, and it could well go to four or five. Depends on which way it sort of uh, it develops. So, there is going to be a, quite a few in the series. Um, it's about the, the main characters called Scott Salvador. He's uh, he's a new employee at NASA. thinks he's you know made it into his dream job, um, but it all takes a turn for the worst when he realizes he's not uh, he's not there for what he thinks he's there. He's there for a, a mission which is on the back of another mission, and it takes him into a world of conspiracy theories and Area Fifty One. It's a little bit about the old Roswell in there, so it really delves deep. There's a lot of sort of factual events through history that have been tied into a, a great science fiction. It's 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 good. There's a the few characters in there that really do start to get their own uh, little personality within the book. There's a few twists and and uh, turns that you probably wouldn't have expected.
2: When you were writing it, Jonathan, you know like you say you had this kind of little plot mapped out though. Did it go in different directions and you couldn't kind of stop it going in different directions when you were writing it?
3: It did, yeah, yeah. You kind of once you start thinking about an aspect of, of which way the story will go, then all of a sudden I, I was one for waking up at two o'clock in the morning and say, "Oh, that's a great!" And I had a notepad by the side of the bed. You know, I used to write these little ideas down, and then it would take a turn for a different turn the next day. So it was what I had planned completely shelved and out the window, and then I had to go back a few chapters and redo a little bit that would change the future of the book, you know, so there was a lot of plot changes. I, I you know, I'll be sort of a little bit better doing the next one because I'll know exactly where I want it to go. So it's, it's, it, it's hard when you, when you only, you've got an imagination. I don't know, my imagination just absolutely weird, but you, you're thinking of things all the time and it was completely changing. Every single time I put something new in, oh, I'll have to go back and change that. But yeah, the characters sort of built up their own and then they took the story forward after that. So it was it was good getting the characters' names and what they did and yeah, a bit about the history, which was a lot of research gone into it as well.
2: I mean, I'm just looking on on kind of Amazon and the reviews are cracking. Do you know what I mean? They're just kind of all five stars there. And it's just like, when's the next one basic? What was it like then, Jonathan? Like, say, you work on this novel for, say, a year, whatever, it, how long it ever takes. And it is a kind of personal journey. Do you know what I mean? And maybe yeah. you, you give it out to a few people. But once you kind of let it out to everyone you're kind of opening up your soul almost, you know what I mean? This is kind of, this is this is what I am, this is it. Yeah. What was it like doing that and, you know, getting the first reviews in?
3: It was good getting the first one in. I mean, the first one was from another author in America, uh, R.D. Hale. And it was it was fantastic because I hadn't had any contact from him. And then all of a sudden this review had picked, popped up on the Amazon site and I was like, whoa, is this somebody having a laugh, you know, and I – no, it was true, and I, I've had a couple of emails and messages from him, and yeah, he said, it's absolutely brilliant, he loved it. And then the next ones came in, I was saying, no, oh, they're, they're all five stars, you know, and they're not all friends of mine, you know, and I'm thinking, where are they coming from? And then you kind of think a little bit, is it working? Is it working? And then you'll get another one in, and you, yeah, it seems to be getting uh, some pretty good reviews, and people are taking it pretty well.
2: So uh, what was the, the experience like then, like putting it on amazon and you know because like you say you've done everything you've done the website you've done everything yourself do you know what i mean what was that experience like it was
3: good It was that was different that was a little bit like writing a book jumping into the deep end because I, I downloaded a program which helped me format it into the right mobi file and then uploading it onto the kdp site and it, then you kind of you stuck with what do I do? Do I do the KDP select or do I put it up for sale? And then you think, well, I've worked two years on a story. You need to get something back. You can't give it away for free. But then you need to get your name out there. There's loads of questions that are sort of bouncing around in your head, and you you, you need to get the answers. And I think I, I priced it a bit too high to begin with, and then uh, I've lowered the price down slowly, and it seems to be it seems to be moving now. And I've had sales sales all over Canada, Australia. Uh, USA, Spain, Germany, England. So yeah, there's been it's been it's been picked up quite well around the world really.
2: It actually might be uh nice as well. what so if we could have helps, you know, like maybe just the, the first chapter, get the first chapter on audio and play it on our show. And it just gives like a little kind of, you know, a tease for people. Oh right, yeah. Because I've seen on Facebook, you know, a couple of the listeners were kind of buying it and getting into it. And as soon as I seen it, I thought, ah, I'm having that. Because, yeah. you know, on, on Amazon now and Kindle, you know what I mean? It's just, it's so easy. Just, to, you know, you can sit on the toilet and buy a book within seconds. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And it's just, I bought quite a few, Mindy you, Jonathan, on, on the throne. So, you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's the ideal place to buy.
3: <laughs> well, a lot of people have said they've started this and they can't put it down. So maybe try not to be on the throne too much. <laughs> so i've just set up some new business cards actually with um the uh, qr reader on the on the back so if you find any business cards kicking around all you need to do is scan it and it takes you straight to the amazon page for the one click buy so it's technology is just amazing nowadays
2: and are you, like I like say that's a, like a quirky way. I wouldn't say that's a nice way to try and get your your book and and name out. Is there any other quirky things you've you've tried to come up with, or is it just like you're sucking and seeing at the moment?
3: Well, it it is a bit of sucking and seeing. It's um, it's I'm enjoying this promotion side, but it's twenty four seven. You've got to be on the ball. You know, you've got your Facebook, your Twitter, uh, G plus. It's I've even joined and Tumblr and um, oh, what is it, Buzzfeed and things like that. It's just trying to get some something out there that maybe is going to go viral. The, the uh, I've, I've actually just sent a Lego man to space, so I don't know whether you've seen the video for that. <laughs> What's that? Tell us about that. There was uh, I found a, a fantastic company in Germany that have just been on the ball. Since I had this, I go for some uh, holistic therapy for the for the cancer, which is uh, Reiki through at um, the James Cook Holistic Centre, and. It was funny because I was just having some reiki, and this idea just popped up into my head about sending a Lego man with my business card up into space—a proper launch, you know—to to get the book out there. And how I was near enough jumping off the the reiki table to write it down because I don't want to forget this. And I thought I looked into doing it myself, but it was going to cost a lot of money, and you've got to get aviation control in England and all this, that, and the other. And I found this company on a website called um, Stratoflights, and they're based in Germany. Um, and they're the absolutely brilliant guys over there, built up a great friendship, told them the whole thing about setting this Lego man off, holding this flag with me, the, the name of the book on, and uh, they were really on board. And they've sent it, they have sent him up, and I've got the, the raw footage back from them, and I've made it into a little movie trailer, and it's been posted on YouTube, and it's 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 got about four or five hundred hits on it so far. So yeah, that's,
2: that's it's, lo-
3: <laughs> just something a bit daft like that, you know. I even last night I took my my kids went karting through at Durham, so you'll yeah uh, you'll know probably that place. Um, I tied some business cards onto the end of some uh, pizza healing balloons, and we just let them off outside. <laughs> <laughs> Just little daft things. Oh, yeah, I'll leave my tip jar. I'll leave a a fiver in the tip jar with a business card. You know, it's things just to get it out, just something different. You know, it's... Because Facebook, social media is so easy to post something and leave it. But Facebook, I'm still finding, is very social rather than an advertising platform where you'll get people that will disregard any adverts that are coming on. Oh, you know, we're getting bombarded, spam, spam. It's not spam. I try and think up of loads of different quirky catchphrases and things like that. Rather than posting the same advert every day, I'll try something different, or oh, have you seen this? Or I'll post a, a paragraph from a different part of the book that you can't get on the uh, look inside from Amazon. You know, so it, it oh, well, I never read that in that bit. Oh, that might be good, you know, and just just different things to try and promote it, but it is 24-7. It's hard work. It's probably harder than writing the book. <laughs>
2: Well, like I said, this is book one. What's where's is book two coming then, or are you just kind of let's, let's just see how this goes? Are you, are you going to delve straight in now? You know what I no, mean?
3: Del- I've delved straight in. It's it's undergoing as uh, as we speak, kind of alongside promoting the first one. I'm trying to find the odd few hours to to still knock a few words out on uh, on the next one. So it's it's well underway, and I'm hoping to get that one out for summertime next year, probably end of August next year.
2: So what was it like, you know, like you say you wrote the first one, Jonathan, what's it like coming to this second one? Is it a new experience or is it still, you know, it's, oh, I've still got, I've still got the touch. Do you know what I mean? Is it that kind of still thing going on?
3: Well, with it being a sort of follow on, there's an ending on the first book, which is is part of the second book, the start of the second book. So it's literally just carrying on. So I'm, I've, I've got into the flow of it, and I can just carry those characters on, and I can—I know exactly where it's going to go. So it's not like I'm starting a new book, if you—if you know what I mean. It's—I'm just continuing the first one, but I've, I have managed to find because I was finding it hard try, trying to draw the first one to an end because it was just going on and on. I mean, it's knocking on 130,000 words, so it's a—it's a fairly long, fairly long book.
2: Well, listen, Jonathan. All the success. Do you know what I mean? It'd be uh, it's just fantastic just to hear, like you know, the kind of the challenges you have met head on. Do you know what I mean? And just kind of overcome them, and then just kind of and even just like say writing a book. You know, for the the first thing, writing the damn things hard enough. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And then doing it yourself, and then doing this and doing that, and then just like the quirky ideas of sticking Lego in space. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's just. Fantastic, you know what I mean? So yeah, good luck, you know. See, I'll put a link on the show so all the listeners can kind of come over and have a listen as well. I'll have a look Brilliant. and try and get, get a copy of it there. What what is your price then?
3: Um at, at the moment it's priced at I think it's it's only three pounds something. It's five five dollars fifty plus tax. So five because 'cause you've got to work it into dollars in, in the KDP site. So it's it's working out at around about three pound fifty five I think it is something like that. So it's not you know it's the price of a pint of lager. I was
2: going to say there you go, cheapest as chips as we say. Yeah. Well, you
3: have, you have five five of ten minutes of drinking a pint of lager, or <laughs> a good a good couple of weeks of reading a good book. There you go, put it into perspective.
2: Jonathan, what can I say? You know, good luck with everything that you're doing and it challenges your, the challenges you ahead. You know what I mean? Let's get this kind of hook up and fly in a way that'd be fantastic. Yeah, that'd
3: be great. That'd be absolutely great.
2: Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on Starship Sova. There you go, even got the t shirt on look. Oh <laughs> hey. Nice. <laughs> 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 Does your wife let you wear that though when you go out and about with her? I bet you can get that off. Get that off now. We're going we're going to the Metro <laughs> Centre. <laughs> you know
3: Sad thing is I I usually wear this when I'm doing something, like promotional-wise, but I'm actually for my wife Scott. got one. She wears it more than me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's far yeah,
3: right, We'll up. merchandise part on the site soon.
2: <laughs> Get tattooed then. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Jonathan, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Tony. Thank you. There you go. Do, Alexei, I've put on the Forgotten Mission and... I've actually put on as well as a link there to Jonathan's The Forgotten mission, mission Lego Adventure. Do you know what I mean? That, you know, I was talking about Matt with his ideas and everything like that. That's got me thinking so much. Do you know what I mean? Oh, man. Oh, I'll be looking at this and looking at that now. I'm dragging a little and into a kind of these exploits that I might get up to. What can I say? You know what I mean? Poor the wife. Do you know, man, the wife's got a hell of a task with me. Yes, I am. That hard work. <laughs> Listen, I hope you enjoyed today's show. It's it kind of means a lot. It means a lot every week. Do you know what I mean support Kickstarter? That support Starship's over. You know, donate. It will be fantastic. Keep this girl going. Oh, by the way, <gasps> forgot to mention. I went to see Interstellar. Oh. <gasps> Oh, man, man, man. And you know what kind of sealed it down? I'm not going to, you know, anything like that, but it's for me, fantastic film. But there a, there's a certain sequence where I thought, and it's kind of personal, I guess, as well, so that's why I'm kind of, I've just elevated it a little bit more, but a cracking film, go and see it. But they do, there's a quote, they start quoting Dylan Thomas poetry. do not go gentle in that dark night, and... Do you know what I mean? And Michael Caine's re- reciting it. Oh man, you know what I mean? Dylan Thomas for me is like, the, the next tattoo I get is going to be kind of under milkwood, you know, the first stanza of that somewhere on my kind of body. you know what I mean? Dylan Thomas for me just means so much. Do you know what I mean? And like what, you know, Matt was saying about, you know, science fiction's not the kind of pinnacle, you know, there is other kind of things out there, you know, if you read his kind of little introduction. And under Milkwood, Dylan Thomas. Dylan Thomas is poor. He, you know, for me, it's just, man, it just... It's what kind of, you know, I guess kick-started, really, everything for writing and enjoying kind of literature in its broader sense. But this film, do you know what I mean? Interstellar, when they kind of do, the, do not go gently in that dark. Oh, man, 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 man. We used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars
3: you just look down and worry about our place in the dirt.
1: Go for main engine. Start T-minus ten.
3: We must confront the reality that nothing in our solar
0: system can help us. Nine. I've got kids, Professor. How long would I be gone? Eight. I'm asking you to trust me. Seven. Mark... You have to talk to me, Murph. Six. I need to fix this before I go. You have no idea when you're coming back.
1: Five. Main engine, start.
3: Couldn't you have told her you were going to save the world? No.
1: Four. When you become a parent. Three. One thing becomes really clear.
0: Two. And that you want to make sure your children feel safe. One.
1: Forever. Potentially habitable worlds right within our reach it could save us from extinction. Here we go. You can't just think about your family now. You have to think bigger than that.
0: I am thinking about my family and millions of other families.
1: Maybe we've spent too long trying to figure all this out with theory. Love. Is the one thing that transcends time and space. Do not go gentle into that good night.
3: Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light.
0: I'm ready. Yes, you are. We'll find a way. We always have.
2: Until next week, just like to see it. Good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal?
3: Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment?
0: Tune in next week for
3: the next exciting installment of stories of that elusive